You know, I've always said that um, I'm not sure which of the songs we sing here below are going to make it into eternity, but I'm pretty sure Amazing Grace is one of them. And so, uh, what a wonderful song, and I love the refrain that, uh, that Chris Tomlin put on that, that we sing as well. And you know, Amazing Grace has like 15 verses, and so uh, the original poem did, and, and so we know, you know, the classic four or five, and one thing I appreciate about, about the modern rendition is that they introduce you to some of the other verses uh, that are in the poem, and so I'm so thankful for that. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Matthew chapter 9, and as you're turning there, uh, I'm going to geek out a little bit this morning because uh, uh, when I was growing up, I didn't really care for the shows too much, but one thing, I, some of my favorite movies were the Star Trek movies. And so, uh, now not the first one, no one likes that one, and the fifth one isn't really that great either, but, but um, I'm not sure which one kind of defines the the category of bad sci-fi movie. It's kind of a twist between the, the, the first one and the fifth one. But, uh, but there's always some of these great lines that come out of Star Trek, you know, like uh, there's Klingons on the starboard bow. Starboard bow, Jim, right? And then there's, uh, I'm a doctor, Jim. And he usually has something before that, but I won't say that here. So, uh, and then, uh, but there's always one that Scotty used to say. There's a couple of them. He used to say, I'm giving her all she's got, Captain. She's gonna blow, right? But the one that I remember is when he's always yelling at his fellow engineers. He says, how many times do I have to tell you the right tool for the right job? <laughs> you guys remember that? <laughs> you know, and there, that, I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in that, right? The right tool for the right job. Have you ever tried to nail something in with a screwdriver? I have <laughs> many times. In fact, I got so frustrated one time, I actually went out to Walmart and bought a hammer and donated it to the church office. And so we now have a hammer in the church office because I got really mad at a screwdriver one day. And so um, the, the right tool for the right job, that is, that, is a good, that is a good thing to live by. And if you've ever tried to fix a car with the wrong tools, boy, that's fun, isn't it? And so... But you know, one of the most frustrating experiences in life is when, our, is when our boss gives us a job or something to do and they don't give you the resources to do it, right? And I think we've all probably had that experience before. It can happen in just about any job you're in, no matter if you are a white collar worker, blue collar worker, no matter what you are, no matter what you do. If, you're, if your boss is gonna assign you a job, he's gotta give you the right tools to accomplish that job. He's gotta give you the time. He's gotta give you the resources that you need. And, and beloved, the same thing is true in the church, that you know, when, we, uh, when we nominate and we put people on the teams in our church, we've gotta give them the resources they need to actually do what we're asking them to do, right? I mean, that's just, that's just common sense. We don't wanna tie people's hands behind their backs. And so, beloved, this morning, as we look at this text, we're gonna see some of the resources that we've been talking about throughout Matthew, this section of Matthew, that the mission of the disciple is kingdom growth, and God has given us what we need in order to accomplish that mission for him. 
And my hope this morning is that you'll be encouraged to be mission-minded, and a mission-minded community, not simply a mission-funding community, even though we definitely need that too. But beloved, I want us to be a mission-minded community to where we understand that our entire lives, even here in Batesville, Arkansas, is lived out in mission. God did not call us to be comfortable. He called us to be sent. And that is true no matter where we find ourselves. But we also find that he gives us the tools and the resources we need to accomplish that vision that he's given us. And so this morning, we're gonna look at Matthew chapter nine and these last two healings that Matthew gives us in verses 27 through 34. And I'm simply going to read them as you read along in your copy of the word of God this morning. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. So then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see to it that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, "Nothing was, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. May his blessing be on the explanation of it this morning. So, so we're moving, we're really moving forward at this point to chapter 10, where chapter 10 becomes the next major discourse that Jesus is going to give. We've looked at the first one, that was the Sermon on the Mount, but Matthew has this order that he always follows. He always gives us about three or four stories that kind of demonstrate what he's about to talk about, and then that moves into a major sermon or a major discourse or major instructions that Jesus has. He does that five, there are five cycles of that in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, some people have even compared that to the five books of Moses. I don't know about that, but I do know that that is the structure that Matthew uses. And in this text, as we're moving toward Matthew chapter 10, he's going to give us the discourse where he sends out the 12 disciples and he tells them how they are to perform the mission that he has given all disciples, essentially. But before he does that, he's gonna give us two last healings and one last summary of his ministry to model for us exactly what it is that he wants us to do. He inspired Matthew to give it to us in this order so that we can see a demonstration of what he's sending us to. And so what we're gonna look at this morning is that, and and how I want to encourage you to be mission-minded, is that Matthew is gonna demonstrate for us that disciples must rely upon God's power. We must depend upon God's power for kingdom growth. You cannot grow the kingdom by earthly means. And we have seen that over and over and over again in the world, haven't we? We've seen some churches that are very successful at doing that. And they'll ride motorcycles into the church service and 
I've seen one famous preacher uh, was preaching a, a, a series on marital relations, and he, had a, he, had a, he actually had a king-sized bed on stage, and he and his wife laid in the bed together while he preached, and, and just all these kind of ridiculous little, little uh, I don't know what you'd even call that. Uh, there are videos of pastors ziplining into the pulpit. There are all kinds of stuff. I, I really hope to be able to zipline into the pulpit one day. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> but um, I don't know that. <laughs> I see you whispering back there, Art. I don't know that there's one that could hold him up. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I assume that's what you're saying. <laughs> but <laughs> he just gave me a thumbs up. How's that? But what I want you guys to see is that none of those things, those things can build a crowd, but they cannot build the kingdom. There are guys out there, beloved, that they are very skilled at building a crowd, but only Christ can build a church. People ask me all the time, how are you gonna grow the church? I'm not, I don't wanna compete with Jesus. Christ builds his church, amen? And he commands us to be part of that. And but we must depend upon his power to do that. And so what do we need his power for? He's Matthew, he's gonna demonstrate two provisions for us this morning that God gives us. And they are, number one, he gives us vision. And number two, he gives us voice. Vision and voice. How many of you guys like the sight and sound theater? You guys went and saw Jesus there a couple of weeks ago, right? Sight and sound, that's what we're looking at this morning. And so... Let's take a look at it. How does Matthew put this together? Number one, if we're gonna rely on God's power, God must grant their vision. God must grant their vision. Let's look in verses 27. And Jesus passed on from there, and Matthew's gonna demonstrate this through the healing of two blind men. Two blind men. And they, they see him or they hear him. They don't really see him, but they hear him passing by and they're following him. Now, Jesus has just left, according to Matthew's chronology, Jesus has just left the house where he raised the, the young girl from the dead. And you can imagine there's been some excitement about this and some whispering about this, and the blind men are probably sitting around. They probably heard this. And now Jesus is walking out of that house. He's going back to his house, and they follow him. And by the way, just think about how hard that is for a blind man to do. They, they follow him, and they follow him all the way back to what the text says, his house. When he entered the house, we can only assume that that goes back to Matthew chapter 8, and we're probably talking about Peter's house there in Capernaum. And these men are following him the entire time, saying, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on us. By the way, this is the first time in Matthew that that title, Son of David, is spoken beyond verse chapter one, verse one. The, it's, a, it's a messianic term. You guys know what the term Messiah means, right? Uh, maybe, maybe you don't. It means God's chosen king. And God's chosen king was to be an ancestor or a son of David, his anointed one. It goes back to 2 Samuel. Second Samuel, in chapter seven, God gives King David a promise that one of your offspring, one of your children will be the king forever. 
And that king will never cease to sit on the throne and his kingdom will be to all eternity. And that theme of the son of David and, the king, and David sitting on the throne is all throughout the Old Testament. And now these two blind men, they understand in some way that, that Jesus is the son of David. Now, I don't think they understand the full implications of that. In fact, they're gonna prove that they don't. But they know enough at least to know that this is the son of David. We already saw this in Matthew 1, that Jesus is introduced as the son of David. The Messiah, God's anointed king, God's chosen one, will be an ancestor of David. And so they follow him. And they follow him all the way into the house. And again, just think about how difficult that was for two blind men stumbling all over each other, stumbling over whatever obstacles there are in the streets. These are not nice paved sidewalks. And they're, not, and they're probably not even wearing shoes. And so they follow him into this house. And Jesus turns around, he confronts them, and he says, do you believe that word faith that we saw so prominent in the last few verses? It comes up again. Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they say to him, yes, Lord. Now, again, I don't think they recognize the full implications of calling him Lord. I think they're essentially calling him sir there. But the question is, is how do they believe this? How do they know this? Because if you look in Isaiah chapter 35, verses five and six, if you look, one of the promises of when the Messiah comes and the Messianic age comes, one of the promises that comes along with that is that the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And if you go on to verse six, it says, then the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In other words, when the Messianic age comes, the, the effects of the fall of sin, the effects of the curse will be reversed. And one of those is that blind eyes will be opened. And they don't understand everything, but they do understand that in the age of the son of David, blind eyes will be restored and they want some of that. And so they go through what must have been an amazing effort to follow him. Here's a man who, wrote, who, who raised the dead. Surely he can open my blind eyes. And Jesus responds in verse nine. Then he, then he touches their eyes, saying, according to your faith. There's that word again. According to your faith, it shall be done. Now, let me park there for a moment because this is one of those verses that can be abused by modern teachers. He's not talking about in proportion to your faith. That's not what this word means. It's not what he says when he says according to your faith. That's not a right understanding of the translation. In other words, the more faith you have, the more healing you get. You know, uh, if you, uh, if you don't get healed, if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. We hear that kind of garbage all the time. Beloved, that is a lie from Satan. And that is not what this is talking about, okay? What he's essentially saying here is because you have faith, since you have faith, then you can have this. 
Since you believe, because you believe. In fact, one, one, uh, one uh, commentator says, he translated it this way. You believe, so you got it. You believe, you have it. And their eyes are open, just like that. You know, blindness in this day, it was very common. Newborns were especially vulnerable to it because of the lack of sanitary conditions during childbirth and stuff like that. So newborns were especially, disease of the eyes were rampant during this time, blind people all over. But scripture will often use blindness as a, as a spiritual condition, as a spiritual issue. In fact, uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter three through chapter four. 2 Corinthians chapter three. I want you to notice a couple of things. What do we mean when we say uh, blind eyes and blindness as a spiritual condition? Paul really brings this out. He says, beginning in verse 12, and he, he refers to Moses, the time when Moses came out of the tents of meeting. He had to put a veil over his face because his, his face was shining with the brightness of the glory of God, and it was, it was quite literally hard to look at. And so he says here in verse 12, but we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze, but their minds were hardened. What does it mean to be blind? It means their minds are hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. That what it mean, that's what it means to be blind. That's talking about the Jews. But if you go on in chapter four, verse three and four, he broadens it out to everyone else. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to all of those who are perishing. Why? Because in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age or the God of this world has blinded the minds and hearts of unbelievers so that even when they hear the gospel, they do not hear it. And even when they see, as we're gonna, as we're gonna see, even when they see the miracles, even when they experience the miracles, the veil is over their hearts and they do not understand the significance of it. That's why you look on in 2 Corinthians three sixteen. what does he say? Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And we all with unveiled face behold the glory of God. You know, blindness in the Old Testament is never healed, not even once. Not even once in the Old Testament is there one case of someone who is blind having their sight restored. Why is that? Why is that? I don't really know. But I do know one thing. I do know that when you go back to Genesis chapter one, and God begins to create the earth. What is the very first thing he does? Chapter one, verse three, what does he say? Let there be light. When God begins creation, he always begins by turning on the lights. 
He always begins. Mark, what's the first thing you do when you walk into the church building on Sunday morning? Turn on the lights. I was hoping you wouldn't say turn off the alarm. So <laughs> we should coordinate these things when we do this. So, <laughs> but he answered correctly. He turns on the lights, right? And that's the first thing God does when he begins to create. He turns on the lights and look at and what is the first thing that God does when he creates us anew? What is the first thing he does when he recreates? Look at chapter four, verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What does that sound like to you? That's creation, right? Let there be light. The same God who said, let there be light has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is God who restores blind eyes. It is God who gives sight to the blind. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see, and beloved, he does that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 16, Peter, in that great confession, who do you say that I am? Peter says, I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in verse 17, Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonas, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood can never reveal this but only my Father who is in heaven. He has revealed this to you. So what does this mean for us? Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter four. Why is this such, a, such so important for us? Why do we need to know this? That it's only God who opens. Flesh and blood doesn't do this, beloved. Any kind of program or any kind of thing or anything we do, any kind of human wisdom, flesh and blood cannot open the eyes of blind men. Flesh and blood cannot reveal Jesus Christ to the world, but only God who is in heaven. He turns on the lights. Why is it so important that we, do, that we understand this? Because in verse five, it says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Christ's sake. How do we open blind eyes? We proclaim Jesus Christ and not ourselves. What are some of the ways we preach ourselves? I think we've all been guilty of it at times. We can, we can get into legalism. We push our rules. And if you follow our rules, that means you're spiritual. We push consumerism. We push our brand we, we try to entertain people, you know, with pastors coming in in zip lines and, you know, what, what's the stunt we're gonna pull this week? Emotionalism, we, we try to manipulate those or we, we try, to, uh, try to push you by manipulating your emotions for results and numbers. Whatever it is, we use the wisdom of the world to try to get results and success. Beloved, there are very good people that are good at doing that. And yes, they can build a crowd, but only Christ can build a church. Only Christ can build a church. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verse seven in this text. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay and earthen vessels and cheap jars 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Not to us. Beloved, the surpassing power of our ministry must come from God if God is going to build his kingdom. We can't rely on our own resources. We can't rely on our own strength. We can't, we can't do any of that. That doesn't mean that we can't get creative. That doesn't mean that we can't uh, try new things. It doesn't mean that we can't do this or that. We're gonna talk about that in a minute, but it does mean that the power for ministry does not come from us. It comes from Christ and Christ alone. We have several volunteers who lead various ministries in our church. And whenever, whenever someone goes to volunteer for a ministry, in fact, I think I, told, I think I told our new deacons this, that you need to understand that when it comes to ministry, things are gonna happen. God allows those things to happen. You're gonna get frustrated. You're gonna get, you're gonna get aggravated. You're gonna get, things are gonna happen. Your, your personal life is gonna start becoming start becoming hard and, and things like this. Why is that? Because God is convincing you that you can't do this in your own strength. And I call it ministering with a limp. And if you have a minister, if you have a pastor who doesn't walk with a limp, that might be a problem. I'm not talking about a physical limp, but you get my, you get my meaning. That we minister out of our weakness. We don't minister out of our strengths so that the surpassing power comes from God, not from us. And why is this so important? Because this story takes kind of a surprising turn. Jesus sternly warns them. In fact, the, the word is literally translated fiercely. He, he fiercely tells them, do not let anyone know about this. Pretty easy, right? Well, I mean, some people are gonna know about it. I mean, that's kind of unreasonable. I mean, don't you think? I mean, why would Jesus want that? I mean, surely my family needs to know. Surely my parents will be excited for me. Surely my friends will, will wanna know. I mean, some people need to know, right? Look what they do. They went away and spread his fame, not just to their family, not just to their friends, not just to passerby. They went away and spread his fame throughout the whole district. There is deliberate disobedience here. Deliberate. Why doesn't Jesus want them to know? Some people say, well, it's because it's of, of a, a messianic secret. I don't know about that. I think it's because that they don't have a clear understanding of, what this, of who the son of David is. And when they go out and they spread the message, they're gonna spread the wrong message. They're gonna spread a message of, of physical healing and physical kingdoms and a Maccabean type ruler who has come to kick out the Romans. He's here. He, ha he has just enough information to be dangerous. It's kind of like me working on cars. I know just enough to destroy a car. Or me trying to grow a plant. I know just enough to kill plants. I tried to start a garden in Colorado. I don't know why in the world I thought I could do that. I, it, it lasted for about two days. That's what they do. They're spreading the wrong message. It's deliberate disobedience. They're going by their own wisdom. Surely, if the king, if the son of David is here, everyone needs to know. Jesus says no. No. 
you're spreading the wrong message. So don't tell anyone, but they do it anyway. And that really is why we must, provide, we must depend on God for our next provision. He must grant their vision. He must grant their vision. But God must also grant our voice. God must also grant our voice. Look at verses 32 and 34. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So what's going on here? Well, there's this man who is demon-possessed. He's brought by He's brought by someone. We don't know who they are. But understand that in the Gospels, the demons have caused a variety of problems among people whenever their presence is there. Like, for instance, this man, he can't speak, okay? Um, there's another young boy that he is demon-possessed, and, and he's, the demons are literally trying to kill this poor kid. They're throwing him in water. They're throwing him in fire. He's having all kinds of seizures and, and all this kind of stuff. There's another man who he is possessed by many demons. It says a legion of demons, and, and it makes him super strong to where they even try to bind him with chains and all of that, and he breaks through the chains, and nobody can control him. There's a young lady who is possessed by demons, and it turns her into a fortune teller, and, and she's being abused by her owners because they are forcing her to make them money and stuff like that, which, by the way, is why you should never go to a fortune teller. And all of this other stuff, most of them are fakes, but the ones who are real, you don't want none of that. And so all of these things, all of these things are happening, all kinds of variety of issues that demons cause. And in this case, it causes this man to be moot. He cannot speak and what's really interesting about this is the way that Matthew words this. Did you notice that? He doesn't record anything that Jesus says. In fact, he doesn't even really record anything that Jesus does. All he does is say, he says in verse eight, is when the demon has been cast out. Now, we know Jesus did that. But Matthew words it kind of strange. He doesn't, he doesn't word it to say, he doesn't record any words of Jesus he doesn't even really, in fact, Jesus really kind of leaves the story after the first verse. After that, all we see, the focus here, is on the reaction of the people who are involved. In verse 33, the crowds are amazed. And they say, never has anything like this happened in Israel. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, and, and they see this and they're, they've got to explain it somehow. And so they come up with this pretty silly explanation which Jesus is gonna confront in Matthew 12, but we're not there yet. But suffice it to say, for now, they're coming up with this explanation. They gotta explain it somehow. So they're simply saying that, well, he's casting out demons by the ruler of demons. And that's really all Matthew gives us at the moment. But I want you to notice how he words this. He's, do you notice that the, the focus of the reaction is on what the people are saying? By the way, what was, the, what was wrong with the man who was demon-possessed? He couldn't say anything. And now the reaction of those who see his healing, who see the demon cast out, the crowds are saying in their amazement, never has anything been done like this before. Whereas the Pharisees, they're saying he's casting out demons by the rulers of demons. 
It's interesting, Jesus heals a mute man. And yet what we see as a reaction is the inadequate words of both those who were amazed by it and those who opposed it. The only problem is, is that both of those reactions were inadequate. Both of those reactions didn't capture what was happening here. In fact, both of these miracles are demonstrating kind of a side note that, that religious experiences is not what we're offering. Religious experiences are not what we're in the business for. And I want you to notice how Matthew is recording the opposition of both healings. There's kind of a believing healing, there's an amazing healing, and there's an opposition to healing, but all of it is opposition to Christ. And do you notice how he words it? He heals a blind man, and then what does he say? See to it that no one knows. He tells the blind man to see to it that you tell no one, and what does he do? He runs out and tells everybody. And, he tell, and, and then he heals the mute, the mute man. And what happens? Two people, and what are they doing? They're saying all kinds of stuff. But none of it is the truth. None of it. What is the point of this? The point is that all of this is leading up to Jesus as sending out the disciples. And what he's telling us, what he's demonstrating in these two miracles is that number one, God must open up the eyes of those whom we preach the gospel to it's not based on our ability to provide religious experience. And then number two, God must give us our voice. We must give his words, not our own. Not our own. This is all throughout the Bible. You see this. Remember when Moses was called, he was coming up with every excuse in the book not to go to Egypt. He says, Lord, I'm, I, I, stut, I stutter, I, 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 can't, I can't speak, I'm slow to speech, right? And what, is, what does the Lord say? Exodus chapter, chapter four, verse 12. Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth, and I will teach you what to speak. In Jeremiah chapter one, verses five through Verses five through 10, I won't read the whole passage, but, but Jeremiah is, uh, is resisting his call and the Lord is answering him. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth for to all to whom I send you, you shall go and whatever I command you, you shall speak. He goes on in verse 10, he says that, um, and then Yahweh put out his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. In uh, Acts chapter four, I don't think I got this one on the board. Acts chapter four, verse 29 through 31. The disciples had just been arrested, received the first beating for the gospel. And now, Lord, look, and this is, the, this is the early church praying, and now, Lord, look upon their, their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In fact, whenever he sends out the disciples in the coming, in the coming discourse, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, he assures them, he says, whenever 
they hand you over, whenever they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. In other words, it's not our words we proclaim, it is God's words. It is his message, it is his gospel, and it is that message that has the power to open blind eyes. It is that message that has the message to save souls. You know, this has happened to me. I've been witnessing to people and I've, you know, sharing the faith with someone and they'll ask me a question and, and I'll just answer it and then I'll think to myself, holy cow, that was pretty good. <laughs> Where'd that come from? <laughs> it didn't come from me. I was discipling someone a while back and I said something that was really great. I was like, man, I need to write that down, you know? <laughs> it's like, that was awesome. I didn't know the answer to the question, but then it just suddenly came. It was like pretty cool. It's, pretty, it's neat when it happens, guys. It's, it's pretty cool. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid of what you will say. The Lord will give you what you are to say at that time because it's not you who are speaking, but it is the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. So how do we need for God to grant us a voice? In Ephesians chapter six, I want you to turn there and then we'll be done. Ephesians chapter six. What gave Paul, what's the source of Paul's prayer? He's asking for prayer from the Ephesians. And I won't read the whole prayer, but in, in verses 18 through 20, he says that praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then watch this, verse 19. And also for me, why? That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What, what are we asking for when we're asking for God to give us a voice? What are we asking for? I think we have a great example here. He says that may, that God will provide him with the words, that the words will be given to me. And this, this is the place where we, yes, we preach the same gospel, but we don't always preach it the same way. There are those who need to be rebuked in their sin. There are those who need to be encouraged and who need to be comforted in the promise and the prospect of the gospel. We should always be looking for effective ways to communicate the gospel, but beloved, we don't ever change the gospel to make it more palatable to sinners. We don't do that. But we do try to find effective ways to communicate it well. And that's what, that's what Paul is praying for here, that God may give me words. And second of all, that God will, speak, will help him to speak them with boldness. This is, this is not the usual term for boldness. It, it doesn't necessarily mean confidence. It, it means to have no fear, to speak freely. Have you ever had that moment where someone asks you believe in what you believe and you kind of freeze up, right? You, you get ner that nervousness kind of mutes you. And that's what Paul's talking about, that, that God will give me strength to overcome that feeling, to overcome that weakness. I've told you about the time I was in the plane and I sat by that British couple and, 
and I started talking to him about the faith and I was talking to the dude and the, and the wife looked over her husband's lap and, and I'm not gonna give this justice at all, but she says, we do not speak of politics or religion. Shut me up. There is nothing like a mad British woman talking to you, let me tell you. <laughs> Shut me up. And you know, the irony of that is that I was going to an evangelism conference. <laughs> That's why I was on the plane. I thought, how weak am I? Of course we're weak. This is at the end of Paul's life. And beloved, he's still asking for prayer, for boldness. Why? Because he's weak. We need Christ to give us the voice. We need Christ to grant them vision. We need Christ to give us the voice. Give me the words that you will use to open the hearts of people who need to know the gospel. That's the prayer that we must pray. He provides everything we need to do his will. And if we are faithful to his will, you can rest assured that he will give you what you need in the time that you need it so that you will be faithful in the furtherance of the kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So beloved, we saw this morning that in order for the kingdom to grow, in order to be empowered for the mission, we, we must ask God, we must depend on God to grant them vision and to grant us a voice. Beloved, I want you to be encouraged in that today. I, I, don't have a lot of, uh, I don't have a lot of conclusion notes here. I just, I want you to be encouraged in that today. Maybe that's the prayer you need to pray. Maybe there's, I've, I've been challenging you over the last few weeks to think of someone in particular. Think of someone on your mind. Think of someone that you can share the gospel with, someone that you can talk to. And maybe this is the prayer you need to pray. Lord, give me the words to say that you will use to open the hearts of my loved one or my coworker or whoever it is. And I pray this morning, if you're there in the pew, I pray the Lord has given me the words that perhaps he has used to open your heart this morning. Beloved, perhaps you're understanding the gospel for the first time. Maybe, maybe you are at a point to where you're saying, you know what, I think I really need this. I've tried it my way. I've tried some other things. I've tried to make sense of life. I've made a mess of things. I understand that I can't do this on my own. My sin has caught me, it has found me out. But I know I need something else. I need someone else to rescue me. Beloved, what you're coming to the realization of is that you need a savior. You need Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can save you from your sins. We're not here to give you a religious experience. It's okay to be boring. But what we are here to do is we're here to tell you how you can be delivered from your sins. And I don't need a zip line to do that. All I need is for God to give me the words and for God to open your eyes. And maybe he's doing that for you this morning. And if he is, I'd love to talk to you more. 
We're gonna have a moment where we have an invitation. And maybe you're here and you need to respond. To, maybe you need to receive the word for the first time. Maybe you have received the word before and you say, you know, Randy, I haven't told anyone, but I, I need to confess my Lord's Savior in baptism. Maybe that's what you need. Why don't you come down and let me know? I'd love to. We will rejoice with you. You are among friends here. There's not a single person that you need to be embarrassed in front of here. We will rejoice. Or maybe you're here and you say, I've got that person. I've got that person that I need to talk to. And I need the words. And I need God to open their eyes because they are so blind. They've heard it over and over and over again and they don't get it. Maybe we'll pray for the Lord to give you the words you need to open their eyes. Whatever your need is, I invite you to come this morning. Father, we thank you for the time here. We thank you for these wonderful healings that you inspired Matthew to give to us and how Matthew has used them to instruct your church this morning. Lord, I pray that if there's one here whose eyes have been opened, I pray that if there's one that you are opening their hearts to understand the gospel and to receive you. Lord, if there's one who has received the word, they've received you and they need to confess you publicly in baptism. Lord, maybe there's one here this morning that needs to commit to the accountability and discipleship of a, of a local body of covenanted believers in the church. Lord, whatever the need is, I pray that you would speak to your people this morning, whether you're calling them for the first time or whether you're calling them once again to be involved in your kingdom growth, your kingdom program. I pray that they would come. Let's stand together. I'm gonna ask you this morning if uh, just to bow your heads for a few minutes, reflect on what we have talked about and if there's something you need, I, I invite you to come on down. We can have a word of prayer or we can set up a time to speak more in depth. Whatever your need is, let's just, uh, let's just reflect on that for a couple minutes. Maybe you need to have some private time with the Lord. I encourage you to do that.